Can we stand together and sing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father. And Holy Ghost. Amen. And as you're standing, I'd like to read from God's Word for us this morning. A couple words of introduction. Uh, we have walked with a people who, this summer, in our series, we've walked with a, a people who have been uprooted from their land and experienced desolation. As you just heard, our brother, this is continuing to happen in the world today. Uh, but the people of God experienced that over a long, a long history, and we've walked through them through their, uh, their desolation and the destruction of their land and the temptation to assimilate to a new place, and even in the hope of return and today, in the story of God's people, we are, are encountering the time after 70 years in exile, from, five, uh, from 598 all, all the way down, or 605 all the way down to 539, 538 BC, they were in exile. But today, we're reading the story of their return. And this was a long-awaited time for God's people, and we're beginning in the book of Ezra, a couple messages from the book of Ezra. If you'd like to follow along, either as I read or during the message, uh, Ezra is at the end of the historical books in the Old Testament, uh, a couple books before Job, if you're having trouble. There is also a table of contents in your Bible. Uh, so Ezra 1.1 summarizes what's happened the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it in writing. And what was the proclamation? The people can go back. There was a, a, a ruler that God moved his heart to, to accomplish God's purposes so the people could return to their home. And not only return, he was going to pay their way. And not only pay their way, he was going to take what the Babylonians had stolen from the temple's sacred articles and send those back as well. And so that's the context. The people are, uh, are, are standing in the grace and the mercy of God. And then in chapter 3 is our reading for this morning. The first six verses of chapter 3, after, after their long journey... This is what it says in Ezra 3, beginning with verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. There's about 50,000 folks. And Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and, the, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Despite their fear of the peoples, uh, of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. And then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and all the sacrifices for the appointed sacred festivals, as well as those brought uh, as free will offerings to the Lord. They began to worship again as the way God had instructed them to worship. And in the, verse 6, on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. This is God's word. It's his enduring word to the church. And we thank you, God. Strengthen us, Lord. Build our faith to not only to read and understand your word, but to put it into practice. We, we bless you for your, the story you have written, the story you are continuing to write. We bless you, God, for who you are, for your mercy, for your judgment, for your power. We, we, we offer ourselves to you, Lord, as we look at this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So what do you do if you're returning from exile after 70 years to a land that uh, maybe your parents remember, just a few of the people remember it in person. Maybe your parents remember, your grandparents remember. What are the first steps? That's what's happening here the end of Ezra 2, the beginning of Ezra 3. What, what do you do? You're returning to this land. We have, as humans, the disconcerting ability to believe one thing and to do another. Do you see that in your own life? To be convinced in our minds, at least, that something is worthwhile and valuable and yet to make choices that resist or even contradict that what we thought was a conviction. Do you see that tension in your own life, even the hypocrisy that comes out? Maybe it's related to diet, to exercise, to sleep. I see it in my own life um, related to prayer. A deep conviction and then acting on prayer, but also the 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 action, the practice, the discipline of prayer, I always see not measuring up to my deep conviction, my belief about what prayer is and what God does as we seek his face. Do you see this in your own life, this disconnect? And we can even do this with beliefs that we, that we hold as primary. We live and act at times in contradiction to what we say we cherish most most dearly. Why do we do this? I mean, I mean, the reason has to do with the deeply entrenched habits of our soul, the emotional brokenness, the, the, um, the broken emotional capacities. It has to do with our sin and our sinful nature. But this sermon is not about why. There's a reason why. We can explore that. But th this sermon is about the process of growth it's about the how. How do we keep this from happening and move away from this reality, this disconnect in our own lives? What is the process of growth so that more and more 
our faith is a matter of integrity. More and more, we're acting on what we believe. More and more, they're in uh, unity in our lives and our hearts. And so the question is, if, if we identify something as primary, how do we keep it primary? How do we keep it primary? How do we establish and protect as central what is most important? What is the structure? What is the discipline? What is, what is the practice that will help us as people not only identify what is most important, but to hold that fast and, and, and live out of that place? So think about your life. Think about marriage. Think about parenting. Think about your workplace. Think about moving to a new home, a new city, a new neighborhood. Think about all the different comings and goings of our life and how important this idea is that we would act on what we believe and how doing that would be a blessing to our, our spouses, be a blessing to our children, would make our souls alive and uh, help us to follow after the Lord and glorify Him. This challenge was one of the challenges that the people of Israel were experiencing as they returned back to their homeland. This challenge we face daily as we make our lives in this secular world. This is the similar challenge. It's the deep question of humanity if we want to be people of faith and integrity. How do we live it out? How do we connect our actions with our heart and our convictions? If we believe that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, He lived, He died, He rose again, He's at the right hand of the Father, even now making intercession for the church. He's at work into the renewal of all things, bringing salvation to us and restoration to all things. If we believe this, and I hope you do, how do we keep that primary? We want it to be primary. We desire, and there are times where we know it's the central. We know it's the motivating fact of our life. But how do we keep it there? Keep it at the center. And I believe Ezra 3 is instructive for us here. Let's think of the people of the text and their situation. 50,000 people had elected to make this dangerous journey home. 50,000 people. They're listed in, by family in Ezra 2. This was not a simple decision. This was not an easy decision. Generations had grown up in Persia and gotten probably quite comfortable, or even in Babylon, and, and then as it is changing to Persia. The, the, uh, the quality of life was higher than it would be returning to a place that had been desolated by war. The, um, the surrounding nations around Jerusalem didn't quite roll out the welcome mat and say, please come back. We'll work together. It wasn't like that, as we'll see, about obstacles and challenges. And this was not an easy decision. And many Jews decided not to return, especially in this first wave. No, thank you. That risk is a little too high. I can imagine conversations around the campfires, even on the way, the months-long journey to get there. And even as, after they're there and they're having to rebuild their homes, like, why are we doing this again? <laughs> what were we thinking? I mean, I'm sure there are people who are just there for adventure. There were people who just needed, they were running from something. But think, you have to think that the bulk of these returnees 
they had a deep conviction about the law and the prophets. They had a deep conviction and a sense of hope of what God had promised, a longing to live in light of God's revelation. This is why they're risking life and limb. This is why they're leaving where they grew up. This is, this is why they're going back to home, which for most of them was never home, because of a deep conviction of who God was and what he's doing. How would they keep that primary thing primary? How would they keep first things first? That's the question. At the end of 2, we read that when they finally arrived in Jerusalem, they made a free will offering, and they, they gave to the rebuilding of the temple. And then they went out and they settled in their, in their homes. They settled in the lands. But responding to this conviction about what was primary, did you catch what the first thing they did corporately as a people in Ezra 3, verse 1? On the seventh month, which is a holy month uh, to, to the people of God, it's September, October in our, in our language, the seventh month, a sacred month, the month where there's the Day of Atonement, the month of the Feast of Tabernacles, the month of the Feast of Trumpets, many Sabbath days in this month, the holy, sacred month. And we read that they gathered, the priests, the leaders, the people, they gathered. And what did they do? They built an altar. At the start of this new beginning, they built an altar. They, they took this tangible step Right from the beginning, they knew that building the temple is this huge, massive project. They built an altar in order to help them keep first things first. Understanding why they did this can help us as we seek to live with integrity, can help us to live with first things first. And so the focus today is on God's altar. What did it mean for them? Was it, and what does it have any continued relevance for us today? What is, what is the message of the altar for the church? This is 540 plus years before the time of Christ. What is the message for the church? And so be, because this, the idea of altar, even though we've mentioned it several times in the service, we've sung, come to the altar. Even this word altar is a distant word. And so we must start by defining the altar. If we go to that slide, I know I skipped around on you, Bruce, sorry. Not that one. Um, defining it before that one. Um, so what are altars? According to the scripture, what, what are the people actually doing when they build an altar? What's happening? So on one level, it's simply a structure for offerings, for sacrifices, for actual... Uh, there's a slaughter of an animal, and it's on the altar, and it's burnt as a worship offering to the Lord. This was a function, a building with a purpose. Like you build a wall. Why do you build a wall? What's the function for defense? What was the function of the altar for sacrifice? But what's underneath that, right? What's, that's, that's on one level what's happening with the altar, but what's actually going on at the altar? More broadly, they are representing a meeting place between God and humanity. This is an intersection point between heaven and earth in the minds of the people. This is sacred space to call out to God. The people of God had been building altars for thousands of years. 
before this point that Noah built an altar, if you remember, as he departed the ark and he builds an altar. Why? To call upon the name of the Lord in worship. So did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before the law was given. And then Moses, uh, by the grace of God, gives the law and prescribes uh, the, the, uh, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the temple so that the people might worship as they come to the Lord. And what do we see there? There's an altar for burnt sacrifices and an altar for incense, an altar for the prayer and worship of the people. So people in Joshua's day built altars. Gideon, David, altars were sacred places of worship. Making the point. But if you read Scripture carefully, if you read through the prophets especially, what else is happening with an altar? They weren't unique to Israel. The, the, foreign, the peoples all around Israel worshiping other gods, worshiping idols, the, there were altars to Baal and Moloch and many other gods. Gods, the Lord expressly forbid His people, do not worship on that altar. So it's not just the altar, not just the place that, is, that is God commands His people to come to. Altars, in some sense, were a function of human need. There's a deep desire in us as people. We, we long to present ourselves before the Lord, call upon Him, have relationship, meet with God. But what distinguishes the altar in view here in Ezra 3 and, and throughout the instructions for God's people? What distinguishes the altar of Yahweh, the Creator, the Redeemer God, the Lord of Lords? What makes it special? What sets it apart? What type of altar glorified God? It was the one where the worshiper looked to him and him alone. It was about the relationship. It was the one where the worshiper came with faith in who he was, in how he revealed himself. The importance wasn't the altar, but the heart and the faith of the one who came before God at the altar. From the beginning, the importance wasn't the place, but the heart and the faith of the one who came to worship. And so the altar was the tool by which people could approach God and draw near with humility. It was the instrument the Lord used for his people so that they would express their love and their worship and their gratitude. The altar was a place of communion with God. And it became so by faith. It became so by faith. So if... if if you read of folks using an altar or coming to an altar without faith, what was happening? The Lord said, this is meaningless. Why are you doing this? Isaiah 1, the multitude of your sacrifices, you're taking all these offerings or bringing all these animals. I have more than enough, he says. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Stop coming to my altar if you don't believe. If you're not coming with a heart of faith. If you're not coming to meet with me and give me praise and give me thanks and, and, and express thanksgiving. So the altar was never a place to appease or impress God. It wasn't meant to check a box. It was a form that helped faith to be enacted and embodied. The presence of the altar was a physical reminder for the worshipers. And here's this slide, Bruce. It was the physical reminder for worshipers, that God longs to be known, that God longs to be called upon. He invites 
us now. He invited his people from the beginning to come to him, to meet with him, that he is worthy of worship. The altar was that physical reminder, come to me, come to me. Bring your hearts before me. Bring uh, uh, that of value and make an offering, not because I need it, but because uh, it's good for your heart and soul that you would praise and sacrifice. It's good to, to respond in this way. So if this is an altar throughout the Old Testament, especially, and you've been waiting for this, right? Come on, Jack, come on. What about today? What about today? Where are the altars in church? Are there? Are you looking at this big table and wondering, okay, finally he's going to talk to us about this big table? I mean, this is a symbol of welcome. Jesus says, come to my table. Right, you are welcome. I long to commune with you. I long to meet with you. I long to sup with you, to have relationship with you. This is a symbol for us of like, come and meet with the Lord. It's not an altar. It's not an altar. So how do we come to the altar? Look at Hebrews 13. It'll be on the screen. Do not be carried away. This is at the end of this book where he's, he's speaking to, uh, to those who are tempted to return to Judaism, to return to the forms of the temple. And at the end of the book, he says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings that merge the gospel with the law in, in ways that... Uh, undercut the grace of God. He says it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar. Speaking to the church, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have an altar. What, what does he mean? Where is it? What is he talking about? We know that this altar strengthens our hearts by grace. So what is it? One commentator says the participants of the new covenant draw spiritual sustenance and life from a source unavailable to those at the tabernacle because that source, that source is the sacrifice of Christ. That source is the cross of Christ. We have an altar. What is it? The altar is our faith in the cross of Christ. Our, the, our faith, our trust, our leaning in, our reliance on what God has done through His Son on the cross. By faith we commune with God. By faith we call upon His name. Our trust in the cross has now become by God's mercy, the meeting place of heaven and earth. You don't have to come to an altar that you journey to. God says, I've come to you, and wherever you call out upon my name by faith, there is a meeting place between heaven and earth. And the source is the cross of Christ. This faith is the sacred spiritual place where we call out. And as we call out by faith, that's a fragrance which is pleasing to God. That is a fragrance, an aroma, uh, using the language of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, which is pleasing to God. 
And by this altar we bring our worship. As we come to Christ by faith, that is the altar which glorifies God. And so now, as we're beginning to understand altars, we can come back to the question of putting first things first. And I will try to um, be concise here. How do we keep first things first? In Ezra 3, 2, and 3, and I won't read it because I read it already, they, they, how did they begin? They built this, offer, this, this altar. And for them, in that context, what was it? Besides a place to commune with God, as I already defined, what else were they doing as they built this offer, altar? What else were they doing? Why did they do this first? It was repentance in action. This was their expressed desire. God, before exile, you were not central to our lives. We had run you out. We had, we had brought in all these other gods. We had not looked to you by faith. We had not obeyed your law. Daniel was praying at this very time. If you read Daniel 9, he was, saying, he was praying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. He knew Jeremiah's 70 years were coming up and he was confessing and repenting for the people. And so the people, as they journey, they return to Jerusalem and they also were repenting. How? The first thing we're going to do is build an altar because that's the last thing we were doing when we left. We need to put you first. We need to make the primary thing central. And so here, this was their public declaration. You are primary, Lord. We recognize we've, too long we made other things primary. Too long we worshiped other gods. No longer you are primary. That was their desire. The problem was us. Your love endures forever. The problem was us, Lord. We repent and we make you central. Lord, be the center of our hearts. Lord, be the center of our lives, our nation. This was what they were saying in building this altar. And so what I imagine what was rising in the people after this long journey, after the bickering around the campfires, after settling in their homes and, oh, this is going to be harder than we thought, they come to Jerusalem and they worship. And what do you think is rising in the people? They've given their offerings their financial offerings to build the temple. It's going to take them 20 years to do that. But now they have this altar. What's rising? God's promises are new. They are, they are today. They are new every morning. Your mercies are new, Lord. We are standing in Jerusalem. Did anybody ever think we'd be standing here again and worshiping God when Nebuchadnezzar leveled the place and burned it to the ground? Nobody. I mean, Jeremiah prophesied it, but really, the realists in the group, like, no way are the people ever going to come back. And yet here, at your mercy, God, there's tens of thousands of us gathered to worship and say, you are central. You are central. And so what are they hearing as they worship? I I am still here, right? I am with you. I am with you. I'm working out my plan. I'm working for your good. I'm still here. And so for us, as we read their example, as we learn from their example, as we hear in Hebrews 13 that we have an altar, one that strengthens our hearts by grace, 
this altar, which is faith in the cross of Christ, how do we establish it in our lives? How do we take the, a, the similar step to say, Lord, you are central, you are first, you are primary. We've, most of us, if you follow the Lord Jesus, you've, that's your great desire. So what, what tangible ways, what disciplines, what practices bring us back to link our hearts in integrity, our faith and our practice in integrity to make the Lord central? How do we make first things first? In Christ, all things hold together. Lord, make that true of my heart. How does that happen in our lives? Let's, um, I invite you to bring the Lord into that question because I don't think I can answer for you what that is. But I, I believe that the Lord wants you to ask that question of him. What are the practices, what are the physical structures even, not that they would be idols, but that they would be a reminder and point me back. What are the places, what is the chair in my house, what are the, how are the ways that I organize my time, space, that will draw me back to call out upon the name of the Lord by faith, to depend on the source of Christ, the cross of Christ, the source of our life. He, he longs for us to have that reminder. And then, having that altar of faith defined as the grace of Christ, Hebrews 13 continues, and this is where I'll close. <clears throat> if we put that scripture on. This, this is right after the portion I read. Through Jesus, therefore, since we have an altar, right, our faith, Therefore, let us continually offer an altar. Let us offer to God a sacrifice of praise. There is an altar, so what is the sacrifice that we lay upon it? A sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess His name. And don't forget also to do good and share with others. That's fellowship. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Using the language of Leviticus, what is this? These are two offerings. This is a thank offering and a fellowship offering. This is by, with our lips, we will actually declare, God, you are good. God, you are here. God, you are in charge of this situation. God, I trust that you can move. God, you make me alive. Whatever it is, we declare with our lips a sacrifice of praise. And with our interactions with one another, there's a, there's a fellowship offering. Loving one another tangibly. That's the fellowship offering. So with the altar established, with our faith in Christ, we are able to make these offerings. Praise with our lips. And tangible love for one another. If you hear of a sister or brother in need, ask, how can I step in? Maybe it's not me that's supposed to meet that need right now, but Lord, am I supposed to share with that person in need? Let's love one another. That's a sacrifice and an offering to God. Let's speak with our lips, not just worship on Sundays as we're here, but we declare in our prayer, we declare in our neighborhoods, God is good. I thank him. God, God is merciful. I'm having a hard day, but I know that God is with me. Whatever it is, we declare with our lips that he is with us. And so let's not overlook the power of our tongue. Let's not overlook the power of 
how we love one another as we make these offerings. Because there will be obstacles, just as the people were finding. There will be, um, despite their fear, they built the altar, right? There will be those who come in and say, no, don't do this. But may it be so with us. May we come to this altar of grace and, and offer sacrifice of praise, offer a sacrifice of fellowship, which is love for one another. And so, Father, help us, Lord God, help us. You've given us an altar. We have an altar, and it is enduring, and it is lasting, and uh, it is the, by your cross you're restoring all things, even our salvation, but so much greater, Lord, the renewal of the whole. Thank you, God. And so by faith, we come to you, and we say you are good. Your love endures forever. Help us to keep what is primary primary. Lord, give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so as we come to this table, where there's no re-sacrifice that's happening, you need to know that the sacrifice has been made once for all on your behalf. If you are looking and fixing your eyes on Jesus, with whatever mustard seed of faith you have, we come corporately to this table and we say, Lord, you have saved me. I don't deserve it. I am unrighteous. I have not followed your ways. My heart is so often far off, but you have rescued me. And I give you praise. You have rescued us through the cross and we give you praise. And so this is an altar just in the sense that as we come and take the cup and take the bread, we are remembering God delights to meet with us. God wants to commune with us, not just now, but throughout our lives. And so if you're helping to um, serve communion this morning, please come. If you're not familiar with our practice, we, we celebrate together. And so I'd invite you, if you're able, to come down the middle aisle to take bread and to take the cup and to take them back to your seat. And so that in a few minutes, a few moments, we will celebrate this, the, the body and the blood of Christ together. And so please come as you're able and come in faith. The Lord longs to meet with you. Mm -hmm.